From elections drama to 911 issues to transportation changes. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. After a stalemate, a Miami City Commission finally addressed the vacancy left by former District 2 Commissioner Ken Russell. WLRN's local government reporter explains why the commission agreed on a special election. Next, after a dispute over the county's emergency 911 system, the shaky partnership between Broward commissioners and the sheriff's office appears to be back on. A Broward County commissioner shares his insight. Finally, a proposed light rail costing north of $850 million could ease notorious traffic congestion in West Palm Beach. An executive from the Palm Beach Transportation Planning Agency explains the potential impact of the project. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. After much debate, the city of Miami announced Sunday that they will let the residents of District 2 choose their next commissioner in a special election. District 2 encompasses Coconut Grove, Virginia Key, and parts of Brickell and downtown. A special meeting was held on Saturday to address the vacancy left by former Commissioner Ken Russell. Russell represented District 2 since 2015, but he was required by law to resign late last year after running for Congress, though he did not win the election. The remaining four commissioners initially could not come to a consensus on whether to appoint Russell's replacement or let the voters choose for themselves, but they ultimately decided to schedule a special election. Joining us to discuss this move by the commission is WLRN's local government reporter, Joshua Ceballos. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, For people who may not know uh, what happened in that commission meeting over the weekend, could you explain why the commission met in the first place? Yeah, so uh, Ken Russell was the commissioner for District 2, and last year he decided to run for Congress. Uh, He ran for uh, the Senate and the House of Representatives separately, and he uh, he didn't win. Under Florida law, he was required to resign. So he resigned. Originally, he had said he was going to resign on January 3rd. That was going to be the effective date, but he resigned a little bit early on December 29th, right before the end of the year. So under the city charter, they're required within 10 days of uh, someone's effective resignation to uh, decide how to deal with it. Uh, They have 10 days to appoint someone in which the four remaining commissioners would say, this is who we want to pick. This is who we're going to put in his seat, in in Russell's seat. But um, should they fail to do that, then it would have to go to a special election. Right. And why couldn't the commission come to a consensus on this vacancy? Yeah, so the, it was the the commission was really split down the middle. Um, on one side were commissioners Manolo Reyes and Christine King, the chairwoman. Both of them said we want to go for a special election. The people of District Two need to be able to pick their own uh, representative, and democracy has no price. Um, that was their line. And then on the other side was um, commissioners Joe Carroyo and Alex Diaz de la Portilla. Joe Carroyo had a few issues with the special election. He said it was going to be too expensive, the high-end estimate for how much it would cost with the max number of early voting days and and um, early voting sites would be $330,000. Um, he said that was too expensive and this person would only be in the seat until November at the next election. Um, and then Alex Diaz de la Portilla said that he wanted to appoint someone because the people in, in District 2 needed a representative now rather than later. He didn't. He said that they shouldn't wait until somebody's elected and then gets in the seat, that they, they need to be on the, on the dais now. Um, but 
the person, whoever's going to be in that seat it, um, is only going to be here until November, but they are going to be part of budget discussions later this year. So it's kind of an important role. Yeah. D- democracy has no price. What a statement, right? Uh, has this happened in the past? What, what did the commissioners do then, if so? Yeah, so there has been a vacancy in the past. In 2020, uh, former city of Miami commissioner Keon Hardiman um, had to resign because he ran for the county commission, and he did win. He is on the county commission. Um, and so he you know, he ran and then resigned late in, uh, late in the year. That was his effective date. And the commission ultimately at that time decided to appoint his replacement. There was some debate. Actually, what's interesting is at that time, Alex Diaz de la Portilla was very much for a special election. At that time, he said that um, the people of District 5, which was Keon's district, um, needed to be able to pick for themselves. And just because the charter says um, that the commission should appoint doesn't mean it was the moral or right thing to do. He's since kind of switched uh, switched himself up and now says that under the charter, they, they have to... they should appoint. Should appoint. Um, sure. But it, ultimately, the commission did decide to appoint uh, uh, Hardiman's replacement, and they uh, they appointed Jeffrey Watson, who held the seat until the most recent elections in 2021. Now, Josh, is there um, any limit or measure of when commissioners can choose to resign when running for other positions in public office? Yeah. So, like, if you're holding if you're holding public office in Florida and you decide to run for another office. You have to you have to resign either way if you're going to run. But the effective date of your resignation has to be before just before the start of your new term. So let's say if uh, Ken Russell had won that election and he started in Congress and his first day in Congress was like January 2nd, he would have had to resign before January 2nd. Um, So that's why even though he was running since last summer, he was able to set his resignation date for January 3rd, which you know he's allowed to do that. Um, but, uh, some commissioners took issue with that. They said he should have done it. He should have resigned earlier. It's particularly Joe Carroyo said Russell should have resigned earlier so that, um, they could have put that seat on the ballot in November. And where did he address those issues? Was that in in the middle of the commission? Yeah. In the commission meeting on, on Saturday, which they scheduled on Saturday, Joe Carroyo basically said, yeah, that, uh, Russell, you know, should have resigned much earlier to give people a chance. and But he decided to resign in January, and Carollo took issue with that. And so obviously trying to give more people a chance uh, for this particular seat. And so has anyone applied for that seat yet? Yeah, so on that during that Saturday meeting, uh, there was already 17 people who had applied for um, to be appointed, basically, to say, like, we're in, I'm interested in the seat. 16 people came up and spoke. Um, uh, they, they gave everybody a chance to kind of address the public. They had a few minutes to talk. Um, a few of them said that they wa- actually wanted a special election. A few candidates came up and said, Hey, I I'm interested in the seat, but I want people to vote for me. So I want a special election, but others didn't, you know, other, other people said that they wanted to be appointed. Um, and so, uh, were there any notable candidates? Seventeen candidates. That, that's that's quite a lot. <laughs> were, yeah. were, were, out of that pool of candidates, were there any notable candidates that yeah. stood out for you? Yeah. So there there were a lot of it was a it was a mixed bag. A lot of different people from a lot of different kind of walks of life. But there were three big uh, names that came up. Um, first one uh, was Martin Zilber. So uh, Martin Zilber is a former Miami Dade County judge, um, and he's he, so he's running for the seat, and he's notable because. Um, a few years ago, he resigned from from his office as a judge following an investigation by the Judicial Qualifications Commission um, that found that Zilber 
had been uh, repeatedly tardy and absent from his um, from his duties as a judge, and that he was he used his assistants and staff kind of inappropriately to do personal errands and treated them inappropriately. Um, after that investigation, he resigned. And since then, um, you know, someone who came up and defended Zilber said that he was exonerated of all of all of those accusations. Uh, but documents that I reviewed said that the, the Florida bar basically said there's no probable cause for us to do any more punishments to you, Zilber. Um, but they, from the documentation that I've read so far, there was nothing saying that he didn't do what the JQC said that he did. I'm Wilkin Brutus. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with WLRN's local government reporter, Joshua Ceballos, about a special election in the city of Miami. Uh, let's stay on those notable candidates. Um, were there any commissioners who supported any of those candidates? Yeah, so um, Alex Diaz de la Portilla very uh, vocally supported Martin Zilber, the the judge, um, Joe Carroyo supported. He said he, he was interested in a lot of different candidates. Um, during some of the voting, he said Martin Zilber. He also said someone else, James Torres, who is the president of the Downtown Neighbors Alliance, um, which is uh, a group of um, condo owners and, and uh, condo renters in downtown Miami. So he's the president of that. Joe Carroyo voted for him a few times. And there was also um, Kendall Coffey, uh, who was another notable um, candidate. He's a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida from the 90s, and he infamously resigned after being accused of biting uh, an exotic dancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now that's quite the story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just to clarify, how did the commission finally come to a decision, how, and how long did it take? Oh, man. So, yeah, that was it took a very long time. The meeting spilled. It was, it was scheduled for Saturday morning, and it spilled into Sunday evening. Um Basically, at, there was the, the two holdouts, Reyes and King, didn't want to appoint anybody. Carroyo and Diaz de la Portilla wanted to appoint someone. So they did ballots where they would pick Carroyo and Diaz de la Portilla, picked some, uh, pick someone, they voted for someone on the ballot. King and Reyes said, no, I'm, we're not going to appoint anyone. But after that, King said, okay, let's, since we didn't appoint anybody, let's move for a special election. But Carroyo and Diaz de la Portilla said, nope, we're not going to do that. Let's vote again. And kind of like the whole Kevin McCarthy situation in Congress, they did 10 ballots. They did 10 votes that led nowhere, knowing that it would go nowhere, um, hoping that somebody would change their mind. But everybody was kind of holding fast to their positions. So they did 10 separate ballots and kept delaying and delaying um, into Sunday. Finally, on Sunday, the city attorney told the commissioners, at five o'clock, you guys are not able to appoint anybody anymore. That's your deadline. So if this meeting goes past five o'clock, you can't you can't appoint anyone. You have to call for a special election. Um, and it was around like four thirty when this was ha- when they were saying this. Uh, initially, Alex Diaz de la Portilla wanted to move the scheduling of the special election until Thursday. He said, "Well, we have to schedule one, but we don't have to schedule one now. Let's just wait until the Thursday meeting." But finally, Joe Carroyo said at like 4.40, you know, right before the deadline. If we're going to have a special election anyway, which I disagree with, let's just schedule it now and let's schedule it for the uh, February 27th. When he said that, Alex Diaz de la Portilla said, well, okay, uh, Commissioner Croyo, I agree with you. And they all voted unanimously to schedule the election. So a lot of moving pieces, a lot of back and forth, internal back and forth between these elected officials. Um, let's stick on Commissioner Joe Carroyo and um, Alex de la Portilla. Um they were pretty adamant about not holding a special election, saying it was too expensive. 
uh, for folks who are listening in that particular district, how much does it cost to have a special election? Yeah, so the city clerk's office, um, they gave a high-end estimate for how much it would cost. They, when I asked, they wouldn't give a low-end estimate. They said, we want to do the, the worst possible scenario. So it's $330,000. Um, and when I asked some uh, leaders from Coconut Grove, which is in District 2, if they thought that was too expensive, they said, you know, again, democracy has no price. You know, we should be able to go. And it's 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 not really that much money if it means we get to have a say in who represents us. Democracy has no price. That's the common refrain <laughs> during this, yeah. this uh, debacle. Uh, call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can, you can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, now, did the people of District 2 uh, get the opportunity to tell commissioners what they preferred to do? Yeah, so there was a long um, uh, public comment period that went for a couple hours, um, where they got to, there was kind of a mixed bag. It was a, a lot of different comments. A lot of people came up and said, we want a special election. We don't want an appointment. We're afraid that the commission doesn't have our best interests in mind. And you guys are just going to pick somebody who's going to do whatever you want. So we want to pick. Um, other people said, you know, I think an appointment would be good so we can get this out of the way. And uh, a lot of people also came up to speak on behalf of certain candidates and say, I think you should appoint this person. A lot of people came up for Martin Zilber. A number of those people who spoke for Martin Zilber lived outside of the district. Um, They said that they had worked with him, that they knew him through court or things like that. Um, And they said that he was a good person and that he should be voted in. Other people spoke for James Torres. A notable person who spoke on behalf of Martin Zilber was Mark Sarnoff. He is a former commissioner for District 2, actually. Um, he's an attorney, and he came up and said, you know, um, I, I, I support an appointment. I want Martin Zilber. And um, also notable about Mark Sarnoff, he's also an attorney for Joe Carroyo in a separate lawsuit, and he is a uh, he also is a campaign donor to Joe Carroyo. And, and a lot of these opinions were expressed during public comment, I assume? Yeah, that was, that was during the public comment period they came up and spoke. Yeah. And uh, just to clarify, when will the special election be taking place? So, yeah, the special election is going to be on February 27th. Um, that gives the maximum amount of days for people to uh, be able to vote and for people to the candidates to campaign. Today is the last day for candidates to qualify. So um, anybody who wants to run for that seat can call up the city clerk's office and send in documentation that says, this is my information. I live within the district. This is my address. Um, and they have until today at 6 p.m. Um, to qualify. So there's still there's still time if anybody out there wants to run for District 2. And, and, and Josh, um, are, are there any minimum qualifications? Yeah, it's, so it's the same qualifications that um, you would have for a commis- any commissioner. Um, the, the most important one that comes to mind for me is just you have to live within the district. That's, that's required. Um, your address has to be within District 2, within any of those areas. I meant to ask you this earlier. Um, is it normal for a commissioner to resign at the beginning of the year could could Russell have done this differently yeah so I mean he could he could have resigned earlier for sure so like he could have um, resigned before the November 2022 midterm elections and um, that that was Carroyo's argument uh, that he could have done that and then they would have been able to put um, that seat on the ballot that everybody was getting so then maybe there would have been more turnout but it's not uncommon for people to delay their resignation. Keon Hardiman did the same thing in 20, excuse me, in 2020. Um, and that's done for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because they want to continue kind of pushing their their items, things that they want to see done in their district, but right until the very last minute. 
And, and Keon Hardiman is the former District 5 city commissioner, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So he was former District 5, now a county commissioner. And are candidates spending money on advertising? I mean, obviously there's 17 candidates, uh, quite a large pool. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how much money is being spent on advertising to sort of separate themselves from the pack. Yeah, so I, I haven't dug too deeply into how, into where people have been spending money, but you can, if you can actually check um, on the city clerk's website, and I'll be tweeting out a link to that earlier uh, later today. Um, uh, you can follow me at, on Twitter at, at Josh Seb. Um, that so the the city clerk's ha- has a list of all the candidates who have applied and those who have qualified, and you can get their campaign reports. And some people have already said that they've raised money. Some people have already spent money. So one candidate, June Savage. Um, has already spent a couple thousand dollars. Um, and Martin Zilber has also raised a lot of money. And, and I haven't checked too deeply on where they've spent it. And one more time, the date of the special election? The date of the special election is February 27th. Thank you so much for your reporting. Uh, Josh Abios is WLRN's local government reporter. Thanks again, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Still to come, a leadership dispute over the control of Broward County's 911 emergency system. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. When the Broward County Sheriff's Office refused to sign a contract extension to staff the county's emergency 911 communication system, Broward commissioners had announced that they had ended their agreement. Last month, Sheriff Gregory Tony gave the county an ultimatum over technology upgrades, saying that the current technology falls short and to make upgrades in the first three months of the year. The county said the demand was too unrealistic. But at a, at a workshop meeting on Tuesday, commissioners and BSO said they'd continue working together. The shaky partnership appears to be back on. Joining us on the show is Broward District 3 Commissioner Michael Udeen. Commissioner Udeen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, before we discuss how officials resolved the dispute between the commission and the sheriff's office, what was wrong with the 911 system in the first place? What, what, what particular issues led to the deadlock between the commission and the sheriff's office? So the way that the county of Broward works with 911 communications, and there's a lot of issues that have been conflated together with this between reading about the radio system, uh, emergency response, closest unit response. Um, but just to break through a little bit of the noise, The way the 911 system works is all of the equipment and the technology is owned by Broward County. And the people that do this are Broward Sheriff's employees that the county uses through a contractual arrangement. So the call center that answers the phone at the PSAPs that start the dispatch are Broward County Sheriff employees that work for the county and the residents under a contractual relationship for the E911. A little confusing, but that's the way that the system works. Um, You know, many years ago, the residents of Broward County voted in a charter referendum to try and regionalize 911 service. So that means that it used to be there were 31 municipalities. There could be 20 or 25 different answering centers for these 911 calls. Then with the proliferation of cell phones, um, it became 
a much better method to have this all regionalized. So right now, Broward is a regionalized system. We have three answering PSAPs throughout the county, north, south, and central. Uh, and we answer the 911 calls for 28 municipalities, Coral Springs, and Coconut Creek uh, use the Coral Springs Center, and Plantation does it on their own, but the rest is all done through Broward County. And, you know, contrary to what's been reported in the media, if we ex we had a major report done by an outside consultant, the Fitch Report, major improvements have been made over the years on this system. And so essentially what you're saying, with the usage of cell phones, um, the technology just didn't keep up with the technology of the times. Is that is that what you're well, saying? Well, what would happen is you could have a cell phone and be in, let's say, Parkland, for lack of a better area, in the northwest part of the county, and you could dial nine one one on your cell phone, and it would go through a tower in Sunrise. So the person that would be picking up the phone would be a Sunrise operator at the time, and they then have to dispatch for a Parkland emergency. As that technology got you know, as more and more people went to cell phones throughout the nation, this wasn't just a Broward problem. Sure. We needed to make sure we were doing things differently and, and, and going with the latest and greatest. Broward County spent uh, a, a lot of taxpayer dollars, almost hundreds of millions of dollars to upgrade the entire E911 technology and the radio system so that our first responders have the best radio systems available. And as it stands right now, Broward County has the latest and greatest Motorola, you know, P25 system that the technology component is, you know, second to none. So let's let's move back a little bit. After Sheriff Gregory Tony refused to sign that contract extension, the county announced it would trans uh, would transition to a different organization. Uh, what would have set that organization apart from the Broward Sheriff's Office in terms of how it would have been operated? So we're we've been operating with the Sheriff's Office through some agreement extensions, and this was an extension that was due to be signed December 31st. When it wasn't signed, there really was no agreement. Now, pursuant to law enforcement and pursuant to charter responsibilities, while we transitioned, the sh they would have still everything would have still happened the same as it was before. They would have still answered the phones and everything would have still happened. But what we would have probably done was brought that back in-house. So these sheriff employees would probably move to the county and it would all be done by the county in one scenario without using an outside contractor. I think that the I think that the sum of the media was, you know, it doesn't mean that we were bringing in another provider that instead of using BSO, we were going to use ABC call center or whoever it was, we were probably just going to bring this in-house and have it run through an in-house Broward County division, which is what many, many large uh, counties do and many large organizations do. So, but that being said, at that time, the sheriff said that he would agree to the extension when we had the workshop. So we will continue to try and find better ways to, to make this happen for all of our residents. Remember, we were presented a few months ago with something from the sheriff that said they didn't have enough people in this position. And we budgeted an, an additional $11 million for them to beef up staffing. To be a 911 call operator, 
the average expected career span on that is, you know, between five and 10 years. This is a very stressful job. And just to train somebody to be one of these operators is about a six month training period. You have to go through mental health training. You have to go through background training, just like you would do law enforcement. So nationwide, there was a shortage for these type of operators. And we tried to step up to the plate as the county to make sure that we were had, had enough people answering these phones. Uh, so essentially that the org if that that organization that you would have transferred to would have been an in-house thing uh, fr from your vantage point, Commissioner Udine in Sheriff Gregory Tony's ultimatum. Why did the sheriff ask for changing things in the first three months? W why do you believe there was a timeline on it? You know, I think maybe that was the structure of the of the extension time period. All I know is there are a couple additional technology pieces that Broward County has already contracted for that we want to add to this system. You know, if you call 911 right now and you hang up in the middle or your calls dropped, every call has to be returned by by law. We have to return every phone call. Think about that for a second. You're driving by I-95, you see a car accident and 100 people call in. And, you know, let's say 10 of them get through and 90 of those calls get dropped. 90 phone calls have to be returned by human beings to make sure that 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 there, there's not, a, you know, by by statute, there's technology out there that can do this automatically. We're upgrading to that technology and we're doing a lot of things. We've we've met with the sheriff and, and he was aware of this. We're doing things to upgrade this technology within the first quarter of 2023. Our technology that we have in Broward County, like I said, is among the best in the nation. It's Motorola's top level technology. We've spared no expense to make sure that our residents have the best technology. Now we just make, have to make sure that the people that are answering these phones do the best job that they can do because our residents deserve quality service. And, and we'll segue um, to that relationship between the commission and uh, BSO. Stay with me. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm speaking with Broward County Commissioner Michael Udeen about the shaky but restored relationship between the county and the sheriff's office. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Commissioner, Sheriff Tony didn't attend the commission meeting. Despite his absence, commissioners ultimately decided to maintain their agreement. What convinced commissioners to salvage the working relationship? So, like I said, we made a major investment a few months ago to increase the people that were behind these phones. Let's see if that works. You know, you're answering millions of 911 calls a year in Broward County. There are going to be calls that have issues and every one of those calls and issues are documented you can pull it you can see exactly when they called when they hung up all of this stuff is recorded it becomes public record uh, if you want to use it we want to make sure that we're not you know starting from zero all over again we want to make sure that we're providing the best level of service you know, to our residents. And I, I said this at the meeting, it sounded very turfy to me, like a turf battle, like we're saying one thing, they're saying another thing, and, and, and we're going to butt heads. It shouldn't be like that. The public has no appetite for turf battles when it comes to public safety. They want the phone picked up quickly, they want it dispatched quickly, and they want a police officer or EMS personnel at their place or fire personnel as quickly as possible. And, and that's what we have to make sure that we keep doing. Now, 
when you have multiple municipalities, we have 28 municipalities, the Seminole tribe, different areas that are part of this ORCAT agreement and this agreement that we have, we have an operating and, and governance structure to this body. So if one city wants the regional system to do something a certain way and the other city has a different idea, it's got to bubble up through this regional governing ORT board where they can all decide what's the best way for the overall system to work. That unfortunately takes some time and that can be bureaucratic for people, but that's the way that we work out the issues that the different cities and the different stakeholders have within the system. Yeah, certainly a lot of moving pieces uh, in, in the sort of bureaucratic process. Uh, Let's talk about that agreement a little bit further. The county owns the system's infrastructure and technology, like you mentioned earlier. But Sheriff um, Tony has expressed interest in being uh, given control of the entire system. Would that even be possible? What's your thoughts on that desire? So, you know, it's an interesting concept. And the problem that I think everyone has with this is the sheriff has no taxing authority. So all the money to pay for all this comes to the Broward County Commission and Broward County Taxing Authority. So I don't think that they're going to turn everything over to the sheriff because all of this has to be balanced against, you know, the needs of the different municipalities, the needs of the overall system and the amount of money that it takes to run and operate this system. So just like the buildings that the sheriff is in, the county owns those buildings and the sheriff just occupies those buildings. This is a county responsibility. By charter, Broward County is responsible for the 911 service to its residents. We do that by contracting with the personnel through the sheriff's office. We could just as easily do that in-house and it could run through a public safety personnel within Broward County and, and that's what many, many counties do. We just choose to do it differently because in the past, different sheriffs haven't wanted to do this. Some have wanted to do dispatch. Some have said, I don't want I don't want to do dispatch. And they've turned the whole thing to the county. So we continue with a partnership with the sheriff. And when you have a partnership, just like a marriage, both people have to be invested in that partnership to make it move forward. Right, right. And, and what is the bidding process for potential providers? Um, I don't, you know, I don't think this is something that would go out to bid. I think if there was an issue with this, it would just come in-house to the county. I think the whole idea of this being bid out is being mischaracterized by the media. This isn't something that we're just going to hire an outside company to come in to do. There really are not many outside companies that do this, if any. This is something that the personnel right now works for the sheriff's office, the 400 people that do 911 and dispatch services. Those people could come under the umbrella of the county and work for the county. It would just have a symbol of how their paycheck is being given to them and the patch on their arm. And, and, and for folks who are just tuning in and trying to understand the bureaucratic process. The county essentially owns the system's infrastructure, technology infrastructure, while the sheriff manages the full-time employees that operates it. Um, So were were there any, I guess, interruptions during daily 911 operations as this dispute was going on? No, I want to assure the public, even if there is a dispute between the sheriff and the county, 
those phones get answered. The contractual provisions provide a a crossover period if we were going to change to bring that in another direction. Regardless, those phones will be answered and those phones are being answered. Now, yes, there have been some calls that when you look at those calls, they don't meet up to the level of what any of us would require in Broward County or would expect. And those calls, you know, we I, I personally asked to see the backup documentation and those calls were not answered because of a technology problem. They were answered because of a people problem. You know, sometimes you have staffing levels that are different at different times of the day and you can be overrun. You know, when you have a system like unfortunately we had at the airport, when you have the airport shooting, well, that overruns 911 with all the people calling in and there becomes, you know, there, there becomes issues. And then, like we said before, anybody who calls in 911 when their call is dropped, that person by by law gets a call back. So all of that amounts to 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 burden on the system that has to be looked at. Then add to the fact that all of the cities and everyone that uses this. Remember, when you call the city's police department, it goes into the 911 queue, even if you're calling the non-emergency line in many cases. And we need to fix that with the cities. So if you call and you need a police report and you can wait three days or four days to get that, there's no reason that that should go in the queue for a backup 911 operator to answer it. Emergency calls should be there only and there should be a separate line for things that are unrelated to emergencies. And it's hard to train people not to just call the police department for these type of issues. Right. But we're working through all that. Right, right. And, and county administration said during Tuesday's meeting that there are about 20 projects to improve the system, um, projects that are ongoing. What's the first most prescient or not prescient? What's the first what's the most important project that needs to be fixed? Um, I think that the, the technology piece is the one piece of technology that does the automatic callbacks so that if there is something where, you know, 20 people call and 18 people don't get through because the first two people have got through and the call has been dispatched, there should be an automatic callback to those other 18 so that they know you satisfy what they do without taxing the people that are working the system. So there would be automation in the callback. That technology exists and we're looking at that. And that's supposed to be coming within the first quarter of 2023. I also think there's there's advanced technology through these systems that give real time locations of where people are right when they call in. It's amazing when you when you get an Uber driver or when you order food on Uber Eats, they know exactly where everything is. These systems have to have their technology upgraded to make sure they have that embedded in the system. Now, remember, these systems operate with, you know, thousands of public safety professionals linked in at the same time so it's a little bit more complicated but those are two important issues that we need to get worked out and, and how long will it take to complete these 20 projects obviously this is a massive system um, but w what's the timeline on that they're they're working on this stuff immediately we've made major improvements on the system the system was totally rehabbed a few years ago if you remember there was a problem with the radios working at the airport and there was a problem with the radios throttling at the msd shooting all of that's been corrected by adding um additional towers additional space and upgrading the system so we continue to work on this you know day in and day out we have dedicated staff that this is all they do 
because this is the most important thing that government does is public safety. And we want to make sure when a resident calls 911 or when a visitor calls 911 that they get the best service possible. And, and so no actual for the 20 projects, no actual date. Would you say a year from now, two years from now? Is there a, oh, a give or take time? I think even sooner than that. I mean, some of these major things will be done in the first quarter of this year. But it, but there's always going to be technological improvements that we're going to need to make in the system. Just like your iPhone, when it comes out and you're up to, I think, uh, unit number 14 or 15, an iPhone 14, every, every iteration gets better and better. And then you upgrade this technology. That's the same thing that we do with our 911 system. Broward County Commissioner Michael Udine, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day and have a good weekend. You too. Still to come, a proposed light rail project could help congestion on a busy corridor in West Palm Beach. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Most residents in Palm Beach County who commute from Wellington to downtown West Palm Beach absolutely loathe the congested drive on the busy stretch through Okeechobee Boulevard and State Road 7. A proposed light rail line costing north of $850 million could ease the notorious traffic congestion, according to a study by the Palm Beach Transportation Planning Agency. The light rail would be in the middle of the roadway. It would cover more than 13 miles, 17 stops, and reduce commuting commuting time to 38 minutes. Officials say the project could take several years to develop as more studies are being conducted. Joining us now is Valerie Nielsen, Executive Director of the Transportation Planning Agency, a federal public agency located in downtown West Palm Beach. Valerie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who hates driving from the western part of Palm Beach County to West Palm Beach. But for people who haven't, uh, take us there. What what does it look like? Describe the corridor where this proposed light rail would be built. Sure. So um, just to kind of tell you a little bit about who we are, we're a federally designated agency. We exist to plan, prioritize, and fund state and federal dollars for our county that come um, to our county. We work on primarily on the state system, the state roadways, um, working with our transit partners and with the various agencies in this area, in addition to Broward and Miami-Dade County. So we are looking at um, one of the roles that we have to do in addition to prioritizing funding over the next five years is also looking out over the next 25 years where are we headed, how are we going to grow, and how are we going to move people in a safe, efficient, and connected way. So one of those things is um, our, this long-range transportation plan. We have to update that every five years. The last update was in 2019 for looking out to 2045, and we're kicking off an update right now looking out to 2050. That's going to be a two-year effort involving as much public involvement input that we can. Um, but looking back at the last update, we identified a network of corridors, north, south, east, west. Um, we refer to it as the 561 plan. Happens to be our area code, but it's uh, five north-south corridors, including our two existing rail corridors, the CSX with Tri-Rail, the FEC with Brightline, and then um, uh, Military Congress. And then east-west, we have Okeechobee, uh, Forest Hill, Lake Worth, uh, Boynton uh, Beach Boulevard, Atlantic Avenue, and Glades. Um, looking at these at these quarters as 
how are we going to move people on these quarters? These are currently our highest uh, transit ridership quarters. They have the highest number of people and jobs per mile. Um, they have, they're already built out in terms of public right away. And as we continue to grow, which we're expecting to continue to grow as a region, but also um, here in this county, how are we going to move more people in a more efficient way? So um, we've studied, we did a planning study on US-1 a couple of years ago, and then now we just concluded this study on Okeechobee Boulevard from downtown to State Road 7 and then to the Wellington Mall. Um, this is, again, one of these quarters of this connected network that actually connects with Broward and it connects with Miami-Dade County. Looking at what if we do um, enhanced transit, something that people would want to ride that would be equal or better to your car, because right. we expect that the... Um, we expect it's going to continue to worsen the experience of driving um, similar to as you get into a more congested area, more people get onto the same geometry of space right. in their cars. So, um, this and, is and Valerie, I, I hate to cut you off there. Um, just, just quick question um, in regards to the initial location of the light rail. I know there's going to be 17 stations. It will take 38 minutes to get to, let's say, uh, the Wellington Mall. Um, mm -hmm. to downtown West Palm Beach is can you describe the sort of area where it's going to be located? Sure. So the it's it would be from downtown West Palm Beach. Um, we estimated it that the terminus is to be determined. It could be from the intermodal center or where they're going to be doing the transit village or it could be to right into the heart of downtown by Rosemary Square. Um, going west, you go all the way to uh, State Road 7. We envision light rail down the middle of the road, um, really trying to promote more uh, ridership, but also walkability, improving bike um, and, and walk safety. This is one of our highest crash quarters for people. Um, between 2017 and 2022, there was over uh, 5,120 crashes on this quarter, 14 people killed, 61 people incapacitated, um, 102 of those people were either pedestrians and bicycles. So a lot of it's very unsafe. So we're looking at a complete transformation of this corridor as the vision, uh, moving many, much more people in a more efficient way, light rail down the middle, having um, more pedestrian and bicycle facilities, and hopefully encouraging redevelopment along the corridor, which means that we have a lot of underutilized land, prime real estate close to downtown West Palm Beach, some of that land could be incentivized to be redeveloped if there were something like a light rail down the middle. So that takes you all the way to the corner of State Road 7 and Okeechobee, hmm. where you have, there's a target there. Um, there could be a redevelopment there that would be might be similar to a Rosemary Square or a Meisner Park, right. where it's a kind of a live, work, play. Um, and then it takes you up uh, down State Road 7 to the Wellington Mall. So hmm. looking at this geographically, we're thinking both of those locations Wellington Mall and the corner of State Road Seven Okeechobee are opportunities to really redevelop it and be an area where people could get to that point and either park or take a you know Uber or a local circulator get there um, and then have a one seat ride that connects with the rest of the region. Got you. And and so these are some of the main indicators that gave um, uh, the the planning agency uh, the green light to to propose this this project and, and of course you can't improve transit issues without capital uh where is most of the funding coming from so this is currently a, a vision plan so it's just um the first step which is doing a planning study um and the proposed project would be um the funding for capital would be state and federal dollars so both the combination of formula funds that come to this county um which is a mix of different funding sources uh 
uh, gas taxes and things like that. Um, and that would be the capital to redo the roadway, to buy the vehicles. However, uh, the operating and maintenance, that is yet to be determined. And in order to actually get to implementing this project and making it a reality, we the county as a whole um, would have to find a local funding source for um, enhancing transit in the sense of more frequent, dedicated transit. Both Broward and Miami have both passed uh, surtaxes that fund enhanced transit, and they're moving forward with their plans. This network connects with their network um, as part of the Miami urbanized area. However, our county, um, are, we have not yet identified a local funding source. So our hope is that in the next couple of years, we're able, and through this new long range transportation plan update, we're able to really have that conversation and see if our residents are ready for something like that, right. if we're ready for um, looking at that. Otherwise, at this point, it's a vision. FDOT, Florida Department of Transportation, is the roadway owner of State Road 7 and Okeechobee Boulevard. They have committed uh, funding to study, do a feasibility, and, uh, and confirm all the alternatives and the proposed uh, vision for this quarter. And that will be a, about a $2 million study. This is FDOT funding, um, and they would be, because it's a TPA priority, they would be taking a deeper dive into this and getting much more into the details, the modeling of everything. However, Again, if we don't have a local funding source, we can't really get started on further, uh, you know, engineering and design and actually right. even constructing, making it happen. So, so two steps, two separate studies to consider before this project even sees the uh, the complete green light. Uh, I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Valerie Nielsen is the executive director of the Transportation Planning Agency. We're talking about a proposed light rail project in West Palm Beach. Palm Beach commuters, uh, commuters, <laughs> uh, do you have an opinion on this project? Give us a call, 800-743-9576. That's 800-743-9576. And, and Valerie, uh, once you do find a local funding source, uh, how much of that local tax revenue do you expect to generate? Um, you know, we're still in the very initial stages that those details haven't been really figured out. However, we are looking at, um, and, and honestly, the planning agency, we're a federally designated agency, we can't really lead that discussion. However, we can plan and say, you know, more people are coming here. We have to find ways to move everybody of all ages and abilities in a safe, efficient and connected way. So those details are to be determined. However, we are looking to our partners to the South Broward and Miami. We're looking at some of our peers around the country, around the state and seeing how, what they did. How did they get that public buy-in? What was their formula um, in, in terms of doing something like this? Uh, one of the reasons for really shooting for the moon to hopefully land among the stars in terms of uh, looking at something so transformational, such as a, a light rail at grade, um, is really thinking about transforming this corridor, encouraging that redevelopment. When we look at, um, for example, Phoenix, uh, they have a quality of life report uh, where they reported after 10 years of implementing their light rail, which cost $2 billion back then, They've had they had twelve billion dollars worth of redevelopment investment in the quarter, four hundred eighty-seven percent increase in ridership, increase in graduation rates, all kinds of community benefits, both economic and health, and really just um, more affordable housing, more jobs. Really great uh, story, and and those are the types of places that we're looking at because ultimately we want people to provide something that's equal or better to your car, 
to move around and right. uh, frequent and dependable. And, and Valerie, I have a question from Ian on Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. He asked, why light rail over something cheaper, BRT, et cetera, Sunrunner or Miami-Dade Busway? Um, so he's asking about alternative uh, uh, sources for transit. Um, have you considered that? And what, what are your thoughts on that question? Sure. I think that goes back to what I just mentioned. Um, what we found is that in order to generate more ridership and actually generate that redevelopment, that retransformation of the corridor that we want, we want more housing, we want more um, shopping and jobs and all of that along this corridor. The developer, the private sector community looks more at something like a permanent investment, like a light rail, much more attractive. Also financially, um, there's more uh, programs for something like that for them to invest along the quarter, which also helps the ridership. So basically, we've right now said the ultimate vision for this quarter is light rail. However, when um, FDOT comes and studies it, they might say, um, well, we could potentially do a phased approach. It could be um, this first, a BRT first, and then that, or it could be leg one from downtown to State Road 7, could be light rail, another piece could be a BRT first. So those details might get worked out, but at this point in the vision planning study, we aimed for the highest and the best um, uh, the best kind of vision for this quarter. One of the things too, when talking to our peers, for example, Austin, Texas, in 2020, they passed a $7.1 billion proposition. It was a property tax, but they passed it for enhanced transit. They tried to sell the public on BRT. They tried to say, this is cheaper, we should do this. And the private and the public said, I'm not paying money out of my pocket unless I have a light rail as part of this package. So we're not saying light rail everywhere, but we do want to have at least one east-west connection that is something transformational, at least as the vision, the ultimate vision for that corridor. And, and, and BRT is bus rapid transit, correct? Yes. So BRT, there's um, bus rapid transit, which, which means that um, it might be... Technically, usually it's a dedicated corridor, but it has buses running on it. It's stopping less frequent, so it might be every half mile versus every quarter mile. Um, it has uh, more frequency. All of this enhanced transit we're imagining, it's something reliable. It's something that you know you're going to get there in this amount of time, right. and it passes pretty frequently. So the issue with buses for matching and trying to attract development is that for the developers, the bus could be taken off the road tomorrow. The right. light rail is a permanent investment, so they're more likely to put their eggs in that basket next to it. And, and after the FDOT impact study, it could still take several years. Yes. All right. Well, Valerie Nielsen is the executive director of the Transportation Planning Agency in West Palm Beach. Valerie, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Thank you for having me. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway, our engagement editor is Katie Cohen, our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz, Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor for news, Mateo Sanchez is the digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.
WLRN Public Media.